You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. I think you focused on Twitter first, and then um, you really started to, to compound. And so I want to dive into how that happened initially. I was working in private equity, so I had no plans. Like I wasn't, I don't know what, I didn't know what the creator economy was. I didn't know what an influencer was other than like Kim Kardashian or whatever. Um, COVID hit and I had more time on my hands. I was kind of trying to like figure out what to do with my spare time. I was stuck at home. I had no social life uh, and I'd always loved writing. Uh, and what I figured was like, I'll just, this will be like an interesting hobby. And so I started doing it on the weekends. I had 500 followers at the time. This is like May of 2020. Uh, and it was very clear to me early on that there was like some pull for the stuff I was talking about. Originally, it was like finance explainers. Like I was kind of explaining finance topics in simple terms. It started like taking off a little bit and the like positive reinforcement I was getting encouraged me to do more of it. So on the weekends, I was spending a little more time on it and it was continuing to go. But I never, there was never like, oh, hey, I'm going to go become an influencer. Or, hey, I'm going to go become a creator and this is going to be a job, right? Like I was, I had a lucrative job. I was doing well. I was on a good track. I didn't love it, but it was good. And you're getting patted on the back for being successful. For me, at least one of the big takeaways was like, I never set out to become a creator. I was writing about things I knew and things I understood. And then as I expanded it, I was writing about things I was struggling with, like my own life, life experiences, you know, problems I was wrestling with um, and things like I was really learning by actually doing them in the real world. Uh, so I was never like, hey, I read this, uh, you know, in some book and I've never thought about it. And let me just like share it with you or like here are 10 TED Talks that'll change your life. Like I, my whole thing was always if a 22 year old kid with no life experience can do this same piece of content, I probably shouldn't share it. Uh, it should really be things that like I am uniquely qualified to share. Um, and that made a big difference. So, yeah, I mean, Twitter was the first place I wrote a ton there. My general perspective was like, let me just figure out layers of depth. So if Twitter was like the most surface level, the next layer of depth depth would be newsletter. So I expanded to newsletter, grew that. Next layer of depth would be book. So I signed the book deal, working on that. Um, and then expanding mediums and like expanding the surface area. So that's, you know, with all the video stuff I do now and kind of growing from there. You're spending at least 5,000 hours in the first year on this. Yeah, it was, I mean, countless, countless hours. Like this yeah. is no, there was no hack. I mean, people constantly, I constantly get asked like, oh, what was the hack? What was the growth hack? What was the, you know, engagement groups? Like everyone yeah. wants to point to the thing yeah. that was like the hack. The hack was that I wrote 300,000 words on Twitter. Like I, I literally just wrote an unbelievable amount. And like some of it worked, some of it was dud, some of it was great, like some of it was medium. And that was the real thing was like, I showed up every single week for long, long period of time. That, yeah. that was it. You just got to do the work straight yeah. up. And here's the thing, like I'll, I'll experiment with things because that's kind of my job as a marketer, right? So like on my Twitter, this guy reaches out to me. He's like, hey, we do these threads for people. It's all these other like creators. And it's like, yes, I, clearly like these are people writing these stories that are super long. And so he does a couple for me and you know, yes, they get 2 million views or whatever. I'm like, great. It totally doesn't sound like me. And like, also who cares? Yeah, I think I know this person. So th this, if it's the kid that I think, uh, I actually like uh, had like a issue with him because he 
told people he so I, i've always 100 percent of the time i've never had a ghost i write yeah. all my own stuff yeah. because i love writing that's yeah. my thing yeah and this kid wrote a message to one of my close friends sean puri uh saying that he did ghostwriting for me and sean is one of my close friends so yeah. sean texted me and was like hey does this guy write for you i'm thinking you know i'm like thinking of engaging him on one of my companies or something and uh i was like what like no absolutely not and he was like insinuating that he had written for me and so i reached out to him and i sent him like kind of a joking message and said like hey my my uh attorneys will be in touch yeah and he freaked out and i was joking but yeah. i just wanted to scare him yeah uh, and, and he uh and like you know and then i basically told him like look you're a 20 year old kid this is a learning lesson for you never do that like don't use people's names that you actually haven't worked with because the world is so small i mean sean literally like within minutes had texted me and i knew and then i was messaging this kid um mm -hmm. Um, so you have to be really careful. Like if you're trying to build your reputation as a service provider, the other thing is like, you have to ask people before you use their name in any marketing. I mean, yeah. this happened with Sean, like with Milk yeah. Road. He had that big, you know, yeah. like public spat with a uh, guy that yeah, did yeah, his yeah. newsletter growth. Yeah. Because like you have to be careful about whose name you, you have to ask. Like if you're an agency operator, you have to ask and get consent from someone that you can use their name in your marketing. Um, and like for any agency operators out there, that's just like you have to do that full stop. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree back to your point on the ghostwriting, like it goes to my point of when you're creating a piece of content, if you are someone that is actually doing real things in the real world, you should want any piece of content you put out to be something that only you could write. It shouldn't be something that a 22 year old kid using chat GPT can write because then like, who cares? Yeah. 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 Could I, I mean, I could go around and basically go find interesting things someone else had written that like, oh, they only have a thousand followers, but they wrote something good and I could just repurpose it, write it my own way. And I have a million followers. It'll get a whole lot more views than their version did. But like, if anyone can write, then like what value is that actually creating for me in the long run? It's just like, it's stupid, right? It's like fairy dust. Yep. It's uh, it's also not authentic either. I mean, with yeah. all the AI stuff coming out, it's like, yeah, you have to either have original stories or experiences or you have to have original data. Yeah. So. I mean, it's kind of my lamentation with the like creator world as it stands today, which are like basically when I was getting started, creator or like influence, it wasn't really a thing. It wasn't like a career path, right? Like you could go make some money doing it short term, but it wasn't like, oh, mom, I'm going to go become a creator. This is what I'm going to do. And so when I thought about it, it was all about like real experiences and authentic things that you were doing. Like you had to go do things in the real world and then and then you could talk about them. Yeah. Um, now there's like a lot of I haven't done the thing, but I'm going to write about it, right? Like a business guru talking about business principles when they live in like a 500 square foot studio and they haven't made any money or had business success is weird. Like that's weird to me, right? Because mm -hmm. then you're just like, what you're writing about like someone else's book, basically, um, if you haven't actually experienced or built the thing. And similarly, like if you're a fitness influencer and trying to build a fitness creator ecosystem, but you're not fit, like, why would I listen to you on that? Right. You know, it's like a running influencer that doesn't have stats to back up the fact that they're a good runner. It's like, it's a weird thing that is that now exists. And so it, like, if I give advice to anyone that wants to be a creator, it's like, go do the thing in the real world and talk about it along the way. Like you can talk about the journey of doing it and the experience and the struggle and the like successes and the failures. That's interesting content because that's like the path that a lot of people are on. If you're talking about it like you've done it and you haven't done shit, that's like, that's just inauthentic, right? It's that's not real. Grifter level. Yeah, so, yeah. Just, it's not real. Yeah. Well, here, here's the thing too. So it's 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 definitely creating, right? And it's it's plus being consistent because you, I don't think you've stopped yeah. tweeting yeah. since 2020, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's I mean, consistency is 
the foundation of everything. And people, like this is a common trope. It's just it's true though. Mm-hmm. Like you just have to keep showing up, and you have to not be so short term that you get discouraged when things don't work because there are going to be just like valleys where for a long period of time and like I'm not talking like one or two posts like you might go three months where like your open rates are really low on a newsletter and you don't know why or like your engagement's really far down and you like the people that you know aren't going to make it are the people that you then see posting like the algorithms changed and it's so bad and like they need to change it back Elon Musk ruining Twitter and the really great people like I just I had lunch with Mark Manson the uh, subtle art of not giving a fuck amazing guy he's been around for 20 years right like he's writing facebook blogs back in the day he's created all these things and his whole thing is like yeah the algorithms change like that's part of the game that's why it's hard to be here for 20 years you have you just have to figure it out like you you're sitting around complaining about it yep. and like getting down during those valleys versus like figuring out okay what works like how do i operate at the vent you know at the intersection of what i like and what's working in the algorithm today rather than just sitting around being like oh the things change this is crap elon musk change it back Got it. And then just to get a little more granular here, the the threads. So you're doing three per week initially. You're working a full-time job. These have to be taking you a couple hours per thread. Yeah. Early on, I mean, each one was taking me at least four hours because I was doing a lot of research to make sure they were really good. I was like refining them a lot. I hadn't built the muscle yet. So it wasn't easy. It wasn't coming quickly. And I think you were like, you didn't have any followers, right? And I think you tweeted something and then I think it was Chamath or something that shared yeah. it. Like, so how did the growth look in the first year? I started at about 500 followers. I posted my first thread. Nothing happened for the first few hours. Uh, I commented it underneath something that Chamath posted. And this is before Chamath was like Chamath. He wasn't super famous yet. He had a decent following, but he wasn't mm-hmm. enormous. Yeah. Uh, it was before all the SPAC boom and stuff. Yeah. Um, I commented it underneath something that was related that he had said. He then shared my thing and said, this is good. That so- sort of spiked me to like 2000 followers maybe. Um, and that was kind of the start. I think by the end, that was May of 2020. By the end of 2020, I was probably at about 70, 75,000 followers on Twitter. That was my only platform though. I didn't have anything else. Um, and then by the time I quit my job, which was May of 2021, I was probably at about uh, 175,000. What was your initial cadence on on Twitter? Because I, I think my understanding is you are usually writing off the cuff. I think you're like screw the content calendar. Like yeah, I can't do the content calendar. I um yeah, I just I'm not like I'm terrible at doing things in advance. I just can't do it. Like I won't be able to motivate myself, and yeah. so and I have to work from inspiration. It's like something I'm actually excited to write about. Uh, so I you know originally I was probably writing about like two threads a week. Um, and I was working a full time job, so it was sort of like. That was all I could do. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever really went more than that. Um, and I just stuck to it. I, like, I never missed a week. E- even still, like, you know, I launched my newsletter May of 2021. I've sent two newsletters every single week since then. No Christmas off, no, you know, holidays off, right. no birthday off. Like, just have done it the entire way through. And that's kind of how I'm wired. Like, when I get into something, um, I'm going to do this for 10 years. Like, I'm just going to do it. And that's the minimum amount of time that I'm committing to doing this. Uh, and it's either going to work after 10 years or it's not. But I'm not doing it for like three months and figure, you know, and, and right. then just being like, ah, you know, didn't work. I want to learn and I want to get better at it and improve. So taking that long term view was very important to me from the outset. Got it. Now in the morning when you're when you because, again, I don't think you have a content calendar right now. So one, where are you drawing the inspiration from and how? What's like your content block in the morning, if you even have one? Yeah. Um, every morning from 5 to 7.30 is when I create. 
it's the only time of day that I'm creative. It's before my son and wife wake up, uh, get out of the cold plunge, which I do every morning religiously when I'm at home at least, and um, basically go sit down at my desk and that's when I am feel creative and that's when I can create. That's been a lot of book writing, uh, some newsletter writing, and then it's uh, you know for the, for the social platforms. Um, what do I draw inspiration from? It's my own life. It's like literally things I'm reading, things I'm uh, you know interested in, problems I'm struggling with, questions I'm asking myself, those kind of things. Um, and that makes it authentic for me where I feel like I can do it for a long period of time. Um, and it means that it's unique. Like it's, it's not, again, it's like, it's not something that anyone can do. Cause I might read a concept, think it's really interesting, yeah. but for me to write about it, then I need to place my own perspective and lens and like how I wrestled with it personally mm-hmm. to, to be able to go share it. And that's the part that like, you can't replicate that's cause that's me. That's my own you know, unique view on it. Okay, so I, I know like with, with Alex Ramosi, the way he does it on Twitter, it, he's really giving advice to his younger self. Mm. And it, it's I can see how tough he's being on his younger self, right? For you, is it just like you're drawing from your experiences, but there's also like, hey, like you should do this? I try to avoid you should do this type stuff. The main reason, I so I do some of that where I feel like it's advice to my younger self. And I explicitly say like, this is the things I wish I knew when I was 22, um, you know, that I feel like I've kind of learned at this point in my life about these different areas. Usually I try to avoid it. And the reason is my answers to these questions are going to be different than yours, are going to be different than our friends, are going to be different than our parents. At any stage of your life, the pr- like the problems and the questions I'm asking are universal, but the answers are entirely driven by your circumstances, your perspectives, the things you want, like what season of your life you're in. And so my goal with all of it is to help you ask slightly better questions, to help you wrestle with them slightly better, but not to give you the answer to it, because I actually don't know the answer for you. Pre-show, you mentioned that you're bearish on the creator economy. So let, let's start there. <laughs> I think it's, it's it's what I said, which is like, there's a lot of people that have gotten into this because they think that it's a lucrative career track, but they haven't actually done anything yet in the real world and like creating real experiences. And that I am really bearish on. I don't think you can do that for a yeah. long period of time. I think you can probably do that for a short period of time. You can like hack your way to a decent size audience. Like if I, if, if I were to start from zero on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever, and you told me like, hey, you have to make, if it was today, so like October, and you told me like, hey, you have to make a million dollars in 2024, so next year. So I have like sort of three months to like build it, and then like I have to make a million dollars next year. I think I could probably do that, but then I think it would fall off a cliff in 2025. Like I think I could for maybe like maybe a year, two years, three years, like hack your way where you could like convince people you're legit uh, for a short period of time, do some like course or something, uh, you know, at brand deals on Instagram, whatever. Like I think I could hack my way to doing that but that's not a lasting viable career like if you want to have a career doing this you're talking 30 plus years right like 20 30 40 years there's no precedent for that in the creator economy the best precedent that exists is people like tim ferris or mark manson who have like been doing this for 20 years um and that's really freaking hard to do. Like you ask them, they've probably seen so many people come and go during the different phases of totally. their life in these spaces. Um, and so my my firm perspective is that if you are going to do this, you need to like uh, really approach it differently. And there needs to be a longer term view and vision. And a lot of that has to be grounded in things you're actually doing or building in the real world. Like the accounts on Twitter that I think are most interesting are the ones that are like, 
in some niche space and then just like talking about it publicly like car dealership guy uh is this like you know he's a friend of mine in real life but like he's doing those things in the real world and then he's talking about them he's built a big audience talking about this like weird niche thing of like auto dealerships and uh you know like used car financing and all these things um that is super cool and he's going to build an enormous empire around these different things because now he has a huge audience of people interested in car dealerships like the potential to launch businesses around that is enormous and businesses that have real enterprise value that have durable cash flow streams totally different from like hand-to-mouth brand deals of like so-and-so is going to pay you five grand to do an instagram reel um and that's just a very very different thing i keep going back to the the warren buffett quote here where it's like if you're not going to hold this stock for 10 years, don't even hold it for 10 seconds. And it applies for everything. That's a great quote. I, I've never heard that one, actually. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'm pretty sure it was him yeah, that yeah. said it. Yeah. This is, okay, so this, this is where it's like um, you have this creator-led agency where you guys will cut up clips, right? Um, I think it was called Viral Cuts, correct? Yeah. I, I tried it for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think my, my take on this one is I think most of them are going to go out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, and my reason... I think so too, by the way. Yeah. Okay. I just don't think ours is going to go yeah, out of yeah, business. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, like, yeah. I, I think, okay, so for, for you, for example, like, you know, you've been in PE, like you jumping around, like I think there's a good strategic brain yeah. and like you don't want to tarnish your name, right? Yeah. So I think yours is going to be fine. Yeah. I think the other ones... Because they're gonna have like an influx of customers, and there's gonna be a big operational issue, oh, and huge. they can't. The churn's gonna go through the roof. I mean, when you think about so, so what you're referring to is like a broader holding company called Assembly, um, partnered with a good friend of mine who's built and sold two eight-figure agencies in the past. Um, he's a laser-focused operator, right? I'm not. I have the network and the connections and the partnerships and the strategy. Um, so we have a lot of complementarity in our skill sets, which is great. But um, the view from us was you can basically uh, leverage creators as distribution when there's product audience fit. So the best example, you reference Viral Cuts, which is with uh, Cody Sanchez and Sam Parr. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a lot of clips. You know, Cody in particular has built an enormous audience off of doing clips. What we've learned, by the way, is like, you're actually not a good customer. The best customer is a business that mm-hmm. is looking to like do tons of video clips and ads versus creators who tend to be like, uh, just like, shorter term customers in general, because if it's like working or not working and you know, the price point, not for you because you have businesses, but like the price point is significant. It's 5,000 to $10,000 a month. A business can easily invest that in doing more direct response ads and doing more brand ads mm-hmm. and all those things. And so the vast majority of that business, which is now, you know, multi seven figure run rate business is, uh, is going to be B2B, you know, it's, it's real, it's businesses on the other end. The best example of this is, uh, like, Hey friends with, with Ali Abdallah, our shared friend. Um, where Ali had this amazing course, the part-time YouTuber Academy that he had built, uh, incredible audience around, you know, helping YouTubers build their YouTube presence. Well, like for me, I could take that course, but I don't want to go edit yeah, YouTube you videos. Do I don't yeah. have time for that. Yeah. I'm not good at that. Yeah. It's not my skill set. I want someone to just do it for me and I'm happy to pay. Um, and there's tons of people and businesses that are like that where they want the Ollie editing, you know, uh, quality and style and all of the like strategy and thumbnails and all of those things, but they don't want to actually do it. And so for Ollie to launch this like premium offering that actually does it for you makes a ton of sense. And there's a ton of leads to your point. Now, the real devil is in the details of how you actually service with quality those leads. That is going to be the thing that makes most of these businesses go belly up. I tweeted this today that like services businesses sound great because you make cash from day one. The reality is building like a tiny little services business is quite easy. Like if you have 
five clients for a YouTube business like that, charging 10 grand a month. If you, it's just you that runs that, you're making 50 grand a month, you feel rich, that's a great little business. Yeah. Taking that business to where it's doing 500K a month is miserable and extraordinarily difficult and requires like a very specific set of skills. I mean, now with these video-based businesses, we have like 100 employees and you're having to manage all of these different editors and you need PMs and you need a GM at different business units. That's like, all of a sudden you're talking about like, you need a culture and you need, you know, HR policies and you need company offsites. Like that's a real business at that point. And so that I that's why I agree with you that I think most of these like, uh, you know, sort of fly-by-night uh, creator-led agencies that are getting started or creator-led services businesses that are getting started are going to have a really tough time because they don't have the actual business background or the business partner um, that is actually going to understand how to like navigate the inevitable enormous challenges that come with these businesses. Got it. That's a good point. And so I guess the question would be with the, are you the hold co here? Are you involved with all these agencies? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the hold co uh, basically is like the shared services layer um, that builds and launches all of these different services businesses. It's not always going to be just services businesses. The idea is like, um, I think, I mean, this is my finance background, but I call it a bond with a call option. So like the services businesses are a cash flowing bond. They are cash flow from day one. You know, they're generating a ton of cash today, like 50% net margins across the whole thing. And you can then take and invest the cash flow from that bond into like call option upside bets. And when I say upside, I mean like real enterprise value, because we know this like services businesses don't typically trade at a great premium. Like you can't really, they don't have a ton of enterprise value. They don't trade at a great multiple. Um, but a CPG business or an app business or a software business will trade at a great multiple. And so those are your like call option upside bets that require some upfront investment of capital. Um, and you can do the whole thing in a really nice way if you're like taking the cash flow from the services stuff and funding the bigger upside bets. I'll give you the flip side, flip side to yeah, that. Yeah, please. So, um, so my podcast co-host, Neil, so he bootstrapped the agency to nine figures. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it took about four or five years to do it off his off his uh, audience. And so my mindset was always like the same. It's, it's like, you know, there's more scalable, you know, um, things with higher upside, you know, better multiples and everything. And uh, what I didn't realize until maybe a couple of years ago or so was that if the agency has, let's say, over five million EBITDA, you're getting like, this is like pre 2022, but yeah. you're getting 15 to 20 X multiples. Wow. Right. And it's like, it's pretty significant. I just think most people don't know about that. And so I got myself, I got trapped in doing too many different things. And now for me, I'm just laser focused on. That's the interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a good counterpoint. I think that like, I mean, even if it's come down a ton and it's 10 X EBITDA or eight mm -hmm. X EBITDA, like at 5 million, you're talking about like, you just created 40 million of enterprise value without having to, in, without having to, you know, invest a whole ton of capital up front. Um, I just, I, um, I think it's really, really interesting. And I think it's an interesting space. Uh, but now you see, you know, everyone is like, th there's been a ton of people that have tried to launch these things, but there's no business background to it. Right. So like, I, I really think, I don't have any business background running an agency. My partner does. If I were to just go try to do this on my own, we either would have like died while trying to scale and take on these leads, or we would have had to stop at 50K a month. And like, as an individual, again, like if you just want to stop at a 50K a month, that's a great business. Like you, and I know a ton of like ghostwriters that have a little ghostwriting agency that makes, you know, 50 to 75K a month. And like, 
that's an amazing business as an individual. You just, you bought yourself a job, but it's a high paying job and it's like a high cash flow job. And that's a great life. If you're young and you're doing that, you can make good money doing it. Um, it's just like, if you want to go build the thing that is then, you know, on the accelerator path to being a real big business, a hundred million of enterprise value, whatever it is, you have to think differently. There has to be another, another layer to it. So is your playbook, I guess, on the hold co, are you going to just, um, keep cash flowing or are you looking to sell them? Like what's the play? I mean, as of now, keep cash flowing um, Mm -hmm. and own 100% of it, right? Like across me and my partner. Um, Today, there's a handful of video businesses. There's a handful of design businesses. Uh, You know, I own a newsletter growth business that has scaled a bunch. Uh, I own like a sort of premium content agency business. Um, So there's a bunch under there. They all have like real operators running them. Um, You know, I would guess... At this point, like I think most of them will survive and do well. I think a couple of them will just be sort of small and like niche, and then a couple will be really successful. And so the question then will be like, what do you do with the ones that are really successful? Do you just keep it as part of the whole and cash flow it? And look, like if the thing is cash flowing ten million dollars a year, is there a reason to sell it, or do you yeah. just say like, why would I sell that? Right? Um, you know, like in our private equity days, my fund owned uh, a really large, uh, the, the largest franchisee of Taco Bell's in the in the world, and it cash flowed, you know, fifty plus million dollars a year. And you're you're sort of just like, why would we ever sell this? It's like you again, it's like a bond that's just paying you an enormous dividend every single year. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes there's just not a reason, like unless someone is willing to like pay you pay you so much that it like takes off, uh, you know, so many years of that future dividend that you're going to take. Why? Why sell it? Makes sense. Do you think, I mean, look, you're getting a lot of leads right now and then you're getting clients through the the holding company too. Um, have you taken any equity in these other businesses or these other creators yet? Um, have I taken, so what do you mean by that? Sorry. So it's like, you know, I, let's say I invest in you as a creator, right? Like oh, oh, okay. I invest in Sahil, the, yeah. the, the brand. I haven't done that. Um, I get asked about that a lot. Um, I think it's tricky because you sort of like, have you seen the last dance, the Michael Jordan? So like Scottie Pippen, uh, he signs that preemptive deal with the Bulls and then he's outperforming it and he's pissed and he's like, I want to renegotiate. I'm pissed. Like it's, it's a, it's like an adverse thing that, that, uh, it's like, he's now, um, upset because he signed that preemptive deal. I think you'd be opening yourself up to a lot of similar things where like, say you invest in a creator, you take 20% 20% of their future earnings, you're going to provide them services. If they like become Mr. Beast and you somehow own 20%, you don't think they're going to be oh, pissed yeah. when you're not no longer really providing them value and you're taking 20%. It creates this like weird environment where like the success stories are actually going to be the ones that are really angry about it versus venture where like, yeah, if, if I give you the money up front, you grow. Like, you know, are you annoyed that I might own 20% of your business when I didn't contribute? Maybe, but you can't do anything about it. Like, it's very stock and trade. These income share agreements haven't fully been, like, litigated or played out. And they they are a little, like, sketchy sometimes um, in, in, uh, in how people perceive them. It happens a lot in athletics. I think there's an interesting... I was just thinking about this at breakfast before coming over, actually. I think there's maybe something interesting to do with, like, athletes, given the NIL stuff in college. Like, if you could you know, like basically sign on athletes and say like, hey, we're going to help you blow up your brand, which is going to make you way more valuable as an athlete, whether or not you have a successful sports career. Um, I'm providing you value via like, hey, we're going to do all of your clip editing. We're going to launch tons of stuff for you. We can get you, you know, all of the stuff that helps expand your brand, which is going to make you more valuable and make you money. And we'll take the cash on the back end and be providing you these services for free. That's kind of an interesting model potentially. 
uh, I was like literally like on the way over here was thinking about it. And I was thinking about texting my business partner. Like, I wonder if we should think about helping athletes grow their brands. Um, it's kind of an interesting idea. I love it. Yeah. Um, your business partner is Hunter, correct? Yeah. So how do I mean, he seems like a really smart guy um, and he seems credible. How, I mean, for people looking to do this, they're like, oh, okay, I, I want to, I don't want to operate. I want to become a creator like Sahil, right? But I need to find a good operator. How did you find Hunter? Um, through my like friend groups and network. If I have one thing about me that is actually truly unique, it's my network of friends and people and the people I have access to. And it's it compounds and it's really hard to compete with at some point because of the way it compounds. Um, you know, like the people that I feel like I can reach out to, text, talk to. Um, and so like Hunter, yeah, I met through you know, several common friends. We became friends over a period of a couple of years, spent a bunch of time together talking business stuff when we weren't working together. Um, and then because he, he was working on his other thing that he had scaled up and was deciding how to sell it or what to do with it. Um, I was working on all my stuff and growing my platform. And then basically we both had the idea at the same time. And we were just on one of our like we would do regular jam sessions where we would just chat about business stuff. And I was like, hey, I have an idea for you. He was like, I have an idea for you. And we both pitched each other the exact same idea. So we were like, oh, we should go do this. Um, we should just do it together. Um, but it was like, again, you know, just like the network and people around there. There's not really, I mean, I've, we've thought about that as a business angle with our hold co of launching like a, uh, like an on deck for, um, for this type of thing where you kind of like, are, yeah, where you're like matching, uh, you know, on deck was like matching founder co-founders. Um, but like, can you do that where you're matching creators with operators? Interesting. It's like, it could be like an on deck slash YC type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah you're yeah. like incubate. I mean, we would love yeah. to do that, right? It's, yeah. it's sort of like um, CAA or Night Media has done it on the product side with creators. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. Like, can you incubate creators? It goes to my point on the athletes. Like, you're incubating an athlete um, to build their brand because they're great at their sport, but they're not probably great yet at building their brand and knowing how to do all of these different things. And so, can you like incubate people um, and uh, and create a world where you're then like partnering them with an operator to go launch something? And like, you're kind of incubating the operator too, and like helping them, providing services, helping them come up with the idea, yeah. or whatever it might be. And how is your content team structured right now, and how much are you spending roughly? You think per month? So I have, I mean, my actual team is me. Um, and then most of like team, if you think about it, is around video stuff. Um, so I have like anytime I go on a podcast, I get the raw footage. Um, there's an agency that I own that also does all the chopping up of clips and creates all the stuff for me, posts. Uh, I actually do all the posting myself because I like to try to like figure out the platforms and how they work and what works and what doesn't. Um, but that's where I get all my clips from. Yeah, prior to owning these businesses, I was probably spending about like 20K a month across video editing stuff, um, newsletter growth, like backend operations on the newsletter. Um, trying to think what else would have fallen into that, like, you know, kind of chief of staff type services that were outsourced. I now have like one chief of staff who's sort of like my main point mm. person that kind of like run, like keeps the trains running on time yeah. with everything um, so that it allows me to kind of like sit in the clouds and just focus on the creative stuff. The chief of staff thing is one thing I've been championing all my founder friends. It's like, dude, yeah. this is the best thing ever. And I, I, I read this book, um, the great CEO within. So, you know, this is a couple of years ago, but Matt Moshari, the guy that you yeah. know, coaches Duvall and like, you know, Sam Altman or whatever. Um, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to coach you unless you have a chief of staff. And then he has this whole write up and I'm like, oh, you know what? We'll just give it a shot. And so it's been the most liberating thing for me yeah. to have one. And it's just like, it's like a, a duplicate version of me because she sits in all my meetings. She sees 
all my patterns, right? And so um, can you talk about like how it's structured for you? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very similar. It's been an enormous unlock uh, for my life. And yeah, he has a very different skill set than me, which is like he is unbelievably uh, operationally focused and very organized. I am like scattered and like to be creative and I like to be able to float around things and focus on the strategy more and the vision and less on like, the notion, you know, uh, database and less on the like making sure we're delivering the things we need to for our different companies. And, you know, now that the ecosystem has grown, I've got like this holding company that has 10 or so businesses in it. I've got my venture fund. I've got all the content stuff. Um, and all of those things have different needs and different stuff going on. And if it was me having to like have my brain context switching, it would be really hard for me to do the creative stuff well. Yeah. And so his role is like, make it so that I don't have to context switch. Like he manages it. We kind of centralize it all into like one little like, uh, you know, sort of to-do list where it's like things that I actually have to do that I know I can process during a, you know, fixed fixed uh, period of time. And then I get to focus and float in the clouds on the, on the things that I'm really good at. And what's like your communication cadence with your chief of staff? It's pretty constant. I mean, it's like text. I, 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 um, I suck at like Slack and all those things. So it's uh, text is like best for me on all those things. I hate emailing. Uh, yeah. I got like PTSD from the emailing days in my private equity <laughs> time. So I'm like a terrible, I mean, I'm probably like, my average response time is probably like a week on emails. So you have so much PTSD. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I just get too many emails now too. I, you, yeah. you probably know this, but like as you increase in your uh, reach, prominence, you know, like perceived level of success, whatever it is, the amount of people that like want things from you increases. And um, it's really hard to uh, sort of triage that and manage all of that. And so like, I'm just bad now with email just because my email inbox is a bit of a mess. I have an EA that helps a lot with that, but it's still, still overwhelming. And how did you get Tim Cook, Apple CEO as your mentor? So, I mean, this is a pretty funny story just because it's like, it's a perfect example of some of the stuff I talk about with like engineered serendipity or expanding your luck surface area. I got started working in 2014. So I had just graduated from Stanford and I was uh, starting at this private equity fund. And I knew that I was going to work long hours. Like I knew that my days were going to start and I was basically going to just be there, you know, into the late hours of the evening. It was like 80 to 100 hour weeks was going to be the standard. And I really wanted to keep up my fitness habit because I had like played baseball in college. That was a big part of my life. I didn't want to just lose that. And so what I knew was that that meant I had to go to the gym really, really early in the morning because I wasn't going to be able to reliably go after work. So I started showing up at the Equinox in Palo Alto at uh, 445 in the morning where they would open like open the doors like just before five. And basically there was this crew of like five to eight people that would show up every single morning at that time. And you didn't really like know who you didn't like ask and like network with these people, but you'd see them every single morning and talk to them in the gym and talk to them in the locker room, whatever. So six months goes by and it's the same people. So you're kind of like they're friends. Uh, and then one morning someone comes up to me. And I was just talking to this gentleman and I walk away and then someone comes up to me and he's like, hey, do you know who that is? I was like, no, who is that? It's the guy that I work out with. He's like, that's Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. And I was just like, oh, shit, because I'd been talking to this guy for six months mm. and probably been saying like dumb things, not thinking. I had no idea that oh, he was never, this like, because wow. I wasn't in tech. I wasn't yeah. in tech and he wasn't, you know, now he's like one of the most famous people in the business world. At the time, he was like the new, this is 2014. So like he was the new-ish CEO of Apple and you don't look the same in the gym as you do, you know, when you're like on stage doing the keynotes for Apple. Um, so I didn't know who he 
was. Uh, and so then after that, I reached out to him and just asked whether he'd be willing to get together for coffee or breakfast. I was like starting to figure out my career. And I made it very clear that I wasn't looking for a job. Like mm. I wasn't looking for anything from him no other handouts. than just, yeah, I wasn't like, I wasn't trying to go work for him at Apple. I wasn't right. like trying to get him to invest in my startup. I was on a great track and I just wanted to learn from him. Um, we also both shared a real interest in policy and politics. Um, and so I figured that was kind of an interesting entry point. Um, and so he said, yes, we ended up getting together and really just like sparked what has become an amazing relationship over the last, I mean, now it's been 10 ish years since we originally met. Um, and he's been a huge, a huge player in like shaping the trajectory of my life and, and, um, giving me a lot of confidence to go and like jump into new things. Like when I left private equity, he was a big part of giving me the confidence to go and do that. Um, and uh, kind of jumping into new things. So I'm very grateful for it, but a truly, truly lucky encounter. Did you start talking to Tim? Like, it's because it sounds like you, you talked to a bunch of people in that yeah. 5 a.m. squad. Yeah, I mean, it's hard when you're in like a small setting with not that many people for a long period of time to not have had some level of interaction with them. Mm -hmm. It's different. Like if you go to the gym at 9 a.m., 8 a.m. and, you know, there's hundreds of people like it's probably going to be hard to build any level of depth of connection with them. So that's part of when I say like engineering luck or engineering serendipity. It was because it was 445 in the morning. There was only yeah. six people there every single morning at that time. Yeah. And so it's much easier than to like build a true relationship plus signal to them that you're not just some guy. Right. Like they know, oh, this person has been showing up, waking up clearly at like 345 in the morning every day for the last six months. Like I was no longer just, you know, some guy looking to like get you to fund my startup or like whatever it was. It, like I had signaled over a long period of time certain mm -hmm. things about myself and about my character. And so like as I think about the like takeaways for people, it's putting yourself in positions where you can win in that way. Right. It's like it's truly expanding your luck surface area. I'm just trying to figure out how the conversation might go because I usually go to the gym around five five thirty, right? So same players, it's, it is around eight to ten people. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm like, what? A, that's a nice, uh, that's a nice uh, pull up you're doing over there. <laughs> well, you don't have to be weird about it. If you do that, <laughs> I guarantee it won't work. I mean, like yesterday, I was here. I'm here in LA, and um, I went over to the Equinox, and uh, someone stopped me, like had seen some content I had put out, and we ended up getting into a conversation. And it turns out that he's like building this media company, like so, sort of like what the Rain Group has done like media, investing, sports, et cetera, which I'm really interested in. He has a partner in New York, like he's going to fly out, like we'll probably get together. And so, you know, there's just interesting things that happen when you kind of like open yourself up to a little bit of discomfort. Mm. Um, and that's, again, it's not to say that like, for every interaction that I've had that has turned into a great thing, like with yeah. Tim or, you know, like potentially with this guy that I just connected with, there's been plenty of awkward ones where you like do have an awkward encounter or the person doesn't like take the doorknob that you offer them to walk through in a conversation. Um, so you have to kind of be exposing yourself to that risk and like the discomfort of getting rejected or having it be weird uh, in order to have the gold on the other side sometimes. So I, my takeaway from this one is it, there's a shared interest thing, right? Because, you know, them talking about, hey, we're doing this and you're interested in that. Or, you know, with Tim, it's like you guys are showing up early. He's like, they, you, you have like shared interest. There's like the shared hustle, right? Yeah. Um, I think that is the thing because sometimes people just don't, don't know what to say. Yeah, totally. And, and look, like, there's no such thing as a loser who wakes up at 4 a.m. and works out. Just like the reality. Like if you go to the gym at 5 a.m., like there's not really going to be anyone that's losing in life there because it's really freaking hard to do. It's just like 
you don't like you have to set up your entire life around that really in order to do it. It takes a ton of discipline. So um, that's just a great signaling mechanism in and of itself. Piggybacking on the Tim Cook story. So he becomes like your mentor-ish figure. I know you don't like to use that word. And so um, then you go to the Berkshire conference, you go to, um, you know, in, in Omaha. And uh, what happens there? <laughs> yeah. So I um, like over, over the course of the last 10 years, I mean, I've gotten to do some really uh, very interesting and like cool experiences and things as a result of my relationship with Tim and, and friendship. Um, one of them was going to the Berkshire Hathaway conference now twice. So Warren Buffett's, you know, annual shareholder meeting, by the way, Warren Buffett is like the OG creator. Like we talk a lot about the creator economy, Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letters, which he's been putting out for the last 40 years are a perfect example of the leverage that gets created by content. Like you don't think of Warren Buffett as a creator, but yeah, those letters have created unbelievable value for Berkshire Hathaway above and beyond what it would otherwise be worth yeah. as like an amalgamation of weird business right. assets. Um, so he, I mean, like as a content creator and as creating leverage via the like putting your ideas out into the world, he's a perfect example. Um, so when I went, I, you know, went the first time, I think it was in 2019 um, and had a chance to meet Warren, which was amazing. And, you know, there's a bunch of interesting people in the circle of Warren, right? So um, Bill Gates is on the board there, um, had a chance to meet him. And just like a lot of interesting people flock to a weird location of Omaha yeah. uh, for, a, for a weekend. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and he brings so many people together that are smart and like winning in whatever their field is. Um, I went back this past year uh, in, in 2023 and also had an amazing experience. And there's just like, it's just an incredible weekend. If you haven't been and you're interested in investing, uh, interested in businesses, it really is like the next couple of years before, you know, Warren or Charlie pass away. It's really worth thinking about going. The the Tim Cook relationship parlayed into a situation where you met some interesting people at the conference and you, so I'm, I'm not going to give away the story, the stories for you to tell, but um, you knew where to sit and something happened. I mean, this is, uh, again, 2019, we're at the Berkshire Hathaway event and I got there really early because I'm like scared of, you know, showing up late to this thing that I'm clearly an imposter. Like I'm not meant to be sitting in this, uh, you know, down low area. Like it's the year before I had actually gone by myself. Um, uh, and sat up like in the nosebleeds of the bleachers. And so this year I'm like down on the floor in the, in the like shareholder area, basically, um, the like board member area. And I'm like sitting there, you know, it's like 45 minutes before the show starts. And I see that there's this like backstage area and I walk back there basically because I'm like, this is where the stuff happens. Like this back uh, car park area, like where cars are going to pull in. That's where like the real conversations are happening. It's not going to be out on the stage. Like the, the stage is the dog and pony show. But the real stuff, you know, in any situation, like any business meeting, everything like there's a place where the like uh, the public facing thing happens and then there's where the real conversations happen. And so I sort of just figured like this back area is where stuff's going to happen. So I just kind of went and like milled around by myself there uh, and probably looked weird like, you know, like some kid basically just like walking around um, and the like garage big like bay doors open close to the time when the show starts and like these like SUVs, black, big black SUVs come in, uh, you know, like Warren walks out of like his like side area, you know, there's like Bill Gates coming out of his car, like, like clearly like all of these powerful people, this is like where they're going to congregate and have a conversation. And so I had the opportunity to be in like a hilarious talking circle, uh, with, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Tim, yeah, you know, and like the, the most imposter syndrome moment that you can possibly have in your life. Um, 
in one in one second and like still surreal to me to think about it um and uh yeah truly like an example of just putting yourself like in the spot where stuff is going to happen even if you don't belong you're just like this is where it's going to be going on so t- i heard um based on your, your story tim was really gracious in the way he introduced you and then you had a key takeaway from this conversation with some of the richest people in the world yeah, I mean, Tim introduced me, which is amazing, and like sort of invited me to come over and, and meet these folks, which is, again, just like the type of person he is and how amazing he's been as a as a friend to me. Um, I mean, my takeaway from meeting these folks or anyone else is like everyone's sort of just a normal person at the end of the day, like Warren Buffett you see like on TV and you're like so nervous to meet him and he's sort of like a jolly grandpa like he's got this like sort of folksy air to him he's like oh what's your you know I asked like what's your favorite steakhouse in Omaha and he's like got that and he's just uh, like he's just a normal person when you have a conversation with them and I think that applies to any incredible person I've ever met it's like it's just people that have accomplished something incredible at their one craft but they're still just a normal person in most cases. And are there jerks out there? Sure, absolutely. Um, but for the most part, it's like genuine people that are just exceptional and have mastered a craft in a single area. Yeah. Um, there, I remember there's a tweet thread. Um, I, I, so you had an interaction with Bill Ackman um, and Bill Ackman's another well-known investor. So I never followed up there. It's like, oh, it seems like they're going to meet for lunch, right? And it was because he, re- he I think he retweeted something that you put out. Um, so what happened with that? Because that, th- this is another example of you increasing your surface area of luck. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this goes back to November of 2021. I wrote a Twitter thread on paradoxes, like sharing a list of kind of some of these like interesting paradoxes of life. And 18 or I guess 14 months later, I'm in India and I wake up in the morning and I have a tech, a bunch of texts that just say like, hey, Bill Ackman shared one of your posts. And I assume it's like something recent because Twitter, usually things just kind of disappear. Like after 24 hours with Twitter, it's kind of gone. Um, but he had shared this thing from November 2021. And he said, you know, like a friend shared with this with me last week. I think it's great. Everyone should read it. And so I like I'm big on closed mouths don't get fed, like shoot your shot because nothing nothing bad comes from that. And so I replied to his tweet and just said, uh, thanks for sharing my thing. We should get lunch in New York sometime on me. You know, it's an open reply, not a DM. Open reply. Yeah. Um, and I followed him. He follows me back. I send him a DM, follow up on it. And we do end up getting lunch and he hosts me at his office. We have lunch together. He's amazing, by the way. I, I don't know how many like... Uh, people have kind of like talked about him in a in a personal setting i found him to be unbelievably kind genuine present like he sat there it normally like i would assume someone as powerful and as um uh like diverse in the things that he's working on would have to be like running in different directions checking his phone constantly but like everything was kind of off and he was present in the room and there. And then when it ends, like he's on to the next thing. And I imagine he's just as focused and present into that. Um, And then the other thing is just like unbelievable capacity to aggregate data, uh, like disparate sources of data, aggregate it, take it in and turn it into like a very simple, concise story like that. That capacity of like data in story out um, is such an incredible skill that you see in high performers that Bill has in in spades. Um, and the other thing about him, which people know is like, he is not afraid to put himself in the arena and he's had some very public L's. 
uh, very, very public L's in cer- certain cases, but still just puts himself out there with the next thing. And he's willing to continue to do that. And in the aggregate, he's had unbelievable performance and he's a multi-billionaire and incredible investor. Um, but a lot of people would be afraid after taking that like one big L, a lot of people would have stepped away. Um, so that's just like, it's a really interesting trait about him. Um, and just like a good, I, I really experienced him to just have like a good, good heart. So I want to go into your going back to your baseball story real quick. Um, this is going back to your childhood. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up playing baseball. That was my um, that was my thing, and that was it was what got me into college. I got a scholarship to play at Stanford, um, and it was really how I kind of tied my whole identity around. Uh, and so now, like, I write a lot about the importance of identity and the importance of identity diversification because it's really, really challenging when you have an identity taken away from you that you've centered your whole life around. And I've seen tons of athletes, entrepreneurs go through this, that it's like deep, dark place when you have that taken away from you, when you haven't diversified your identity. Um, I got hurt my last year at Stanford, hurt my shoulder. I thought I would go play professionally. I was never good enough to like make a true career out of it, but it's hard to tell a kid that. Like in your mind, you sort of need this like, false uh, confidence almost in order to do well uh, that I definitely had. Uh, in hindsight, I obviously can can admit this and know this, um, but I, uh, I got hurt and I remember like the hardest part about it was calling my dad to tell him that I was not going to be able to play anymore because so much of our relationship growing up had been centered around this one thing. Like we had, he'd gone to all my games. He had supported me, taken me to all my lessons. And I remember, uh, calling him and being like really emotional and him saying to me, uh, like, I don't care. I, you know, I'm, it was so, I'm so proud to have supported you and whatever you do next, I'm going to be there to cheer you on, whatever it is. And that was such a powerful unlock for me in life that just like, it made me realize the type of father that I wanted to be too, that I just wanted to be that like, uh, you know, unquestioning cheerleader for my, for my children, for my son, uh, to just be there. And it's true. Like it has played out in the way my dad has actually operated. Like I went and ran a marathon a month ago and my dad surprised me, like flew out for it, was there at the finish line. Um, like, and that's a stupid thing, right? Like yeah. I don't, I'm not getting like awards for it's winning amazing. marathons, but he's showing yeah. up and he's there because he really meant that that was a core value that was so important to him. And that's how I want to be with my son as he gets older. Um, you know, that unquestioning cheerleader. What are some other, so A, that's amazing. Um, B, what are some patterns that you're for sure just going to model from your mom and dad? Ooh, so many, man. Um, I'm really close with my parents. Um, let's see. I mean, my dad uh, was one of the most disciplined people that I knew. Um I would say the thing that I really took away from him was that I always felt like I was included in the why of what he was doing. Um, and what I mean by that is he had to travel a lot. Like he worked a lot, he traveled a lot, he was gone sometimes, but I always knew why he was doing those things, like why they were important to him, why they were helping him provide for the family, why they were uh, uh, you know, meaningful to him, why they were tied to his purpose. And so that made me feel like I was included in the journey. And I write a lot about the importance of being present and kind of giving your energy to your children during this like 10 year stretch where you are like the most important thing in their world, like until they go off and kind of have their own life. Um, and that doesn't always mean you have to be there, right? Like I'm in LA right now. My son is at home in New York. I've been gone all week. 
But as he gets older, when I travel, I want him to know why I'm doing those things, like why it's important to me, why I care about it. Because if you don't tell them the why, kids tend to fill it with whatever the worst thing is. Like, oh, my dad just doesn't want to be at my sports game or my dad doesn't want to be at this recital or my dad doesn't want to be at these dinners uh, versus it's because he's working on this thing that he really cares about because he's providing for the family, whatever it is. And so like, there's a lot of, you know, moms and dads out there that are like working two jobs and not, not able to be around as much as they would want to be. But if you include your kid in the why of why you're doing that to provide for the family, to be there, to give them the life that you want, that's such a powerful thing because then your kid knows that they don't fill it with the worst thing. They fill it with the great thing that is the truth. So would he like always um, sit you down when he's with you in person and tell you the why? Like how how did that look? Yeah, it was like over dinners when we were all together. It was like, here's what I was working on this week. I was in Jakarta and, you know, I was giving this talk at this, uh, the World Bank or whatever it was. And uh, here was what the talk was about. And it was stuff that I didn't necessarily understand but seeing him get so excited about things he was working on, like that rubs off on you too, that you want to work on meaningful things right. where you get excited about it the same way he did. Right. Um, so that was really, really um, powerful for me. Got it. So that was the rebirth, led you to PE, and then uh, I might even argue the real rebirth is in the last three, four years. Yeah, this is definitely the real rebirth. I mean, the PE stuff was like, I took that job because I wanted to sound successful. Um, there was no, I mean, I there was no like character change that led to me taking that job. That job was, um, I want externally to appear successful. So what do I do? I have to go into either investment banking or go join McKinsey and consulting or, you know, go join a hedge fund or a private equity fund. And, uh, it works. People do think you're successful and it sounds great. And you're like, Oh, I'm a vice president at this firm and you feel important and you're flying first class. And there's all this stuff that like people pat you on the back. But if you're miserable, if you don't enjoy it, if you're not getting energy from it, you're going to wake up in 50 years and be like, what the hell did I just do with my life? This is the one, you get one, literally you get one chance where you're between 20 and 50 years old to like really work on things you care about um, or to really feel like it's connected to your purpose, whatever that might be. Uh, your purpose doesn't have to be your job either. Like I often get caught in this trap. Uh, it's easy to say like, oh, you should feel so much purpose in the thing you're doing. Well, not everyone has that luxury, right? Like I feel like I have that luxury now where I feel a real purpose with my work. Not everyone has that or can ever hope to have that. But you need to connect your purpose to your work. And if your purpose is providing for your family, as an example, like if your purpose is to provide for your children, then have that purpose on your mind when you're going to work and when you're going to do the thing. Because even if you hate the thing you're doing, whatever it is, if you have that connected purpose with it, you're going to have a whole lot more energy showing up to whatever it is on a daily basis when the purpose is connected, when you're realizing like, okay, I'm going to this job right now because my purpose is providing for my family and that's what I'm doing with this. Um, it allows you to get through, I think, those harder times and those like valleys that life inev inevitably has when you are connecting to whatever your higher order purpose is. What do you think your purpose was four years ago versus now? Selfish? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think my purpose prior to having children was like entirely selfish. I, I um, I've written about this, that like, I think having a kid is the first time in your entire life that you are not innately selfish. Uh, and my wife might uh, be angry at me for saying that. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's true. Like until you have something that is really a part of you in that way, everything is about yourself and it's about status and prestige and money and all these things that are so just like 
textureless, right? Like come and go and you chase them your whole life and not find any fulfillment. Um, and I have found just so much meaning since he's been born of feeling like, okay, this is the reason I'm here. And like the real reason. Yeah. The real reason. And for both of us, my wife feels the same way. Um, but that like that to me is it's really the first time that you have to give up your innate selfishness and feel like without question, you would dive in front of a car for this thing. You started angel investing, I believe, off your own balance sheet in 2020 to kind of build your track record. Yeah, Is that it was true like 2017, 2018. I probably okay. made my first angel investment um, and uh, probably had done, I'd probably invested like maybe $300,000 of my own money in mm -hmm. early stage stuff between 2017 and 2021. Yep. Um, yeah. And what kind of success did you need to have to then say, okay, I'm going to go raise a $10 million fund? Fake success, you know, like on paper success. Uh, <laughs> anyone that was a, that was a, uh, and I'm perfectly comfortable saying that. I yep. mean, any, uh, anyone that was like investing in venture uh, from like 2017 to 2020, if your paper markups didn't look good, yeah. you were like terribly really bad at investing. Yeah. Because yeah. basically like if you were getting into anything that like was a good founder, they were then going and raising big markups from all the big funds who were just like, there was so much money flooding into it. So um, I had a good paper track record during that period. It will remain to be seen if it will be a great actual track record during that period. I raised my fund, which I'm really excited about the things that I've invested in because of the timing of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I raised the fund in 2022. So like oh, the fund is getting good. deployed into a much better market where the prices have come down. Congrats. That was just luck. Like yeah. I didn't, I wasn't like, Hey, this is the time to raise the fund. Like <laughs> yeah. I just happened to raise the fund in 2022. Um, if I had raised it a year earlier, yeah. it would be in a lot of trouble. Like, On the I would back have deployed end of 2021. Right. Uh, uh, it was like early mid 2022. Okay, so you knew um, it was yeah, I mean, it was like it was getting bad. Yeah, when I closed it was when the market started to pull back. So like yeah. the second half of that fund will be deployed into probably at least 20, 30 percent lower valuations. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, if you were a 2020 or 2021 fund vintage in venture, it's going to be really, really hard to have a good return because you deployed a lot of your fund into like the highest, most bubbly peak market in history at, you know, where interest rates were zero. I'm curious. I mean, so this this is going into the PE stuff a little bit, and I want to come back to this. But um, I could never, like, I would imagine this is my um, my guess. Working in PE, you got to be super detail oriented. You got to be willing to grind it out, which you are willing to grind it out. Um, but also, you're like a creator too. So for me, I don't know if I could work in PE because it requires, um, I don't know. It's it's like. The detail-oriented piece gets to me. So. Yeah, I mean, you'd be... Um, this was how I was, by the way. So I was like... I was an uh, I was a good analyst. I would say I was a good analyst. I like it, I'll I'll send this clip to uh, some of my old colleagues and they'll tell me if I was a good analyst or not. Uh, I was a good analyst. Uh, I was not a great analyst. Um, I always sort of knew I would be a better partner than analyst. And that was because as you accelerate in that track and in any track, the job becomes less about detail orientation, modeling, presentations, etc. and more about relationships. And that was what I was actually good at. And so you know, I was like, I sort of felt like I was getting better at the job as I was getting promoted. Like I was a much better vice president than I was an analyst. Um, and that was my bet on like why I was staying in it was like, I'm going to keep getting better at this and enjoying it more over time as the job becomes more about things that I actually am good at. And you're, I think you've thought about this when I listened to a podcast with the, someone asking you about your superpower. It seems like you've thought through that. So do you think that's your superpower, really relationships? Yeah, I think relationships and like the ability to connect with different types of people, I would say is the actual 
superpower there. Um, I'm not transactional. Like I, I just, I don't care enough about money to be transactional. Frankly, um, I sort of figure like I'll make money. I'll figure out ways to make money. Uh, I don't care about making like a billion dollars. Like that just doesn't matter to me. Um, I love people. I love relationships. I love learning from different types of people and different backgrounds, different experiences, whether they're like quote unquote successful or not, I don't care. Um, and so I and I come, it's because I come from like a mixed race. You know, my mom is Indian. I come from a mixed race background. My dad's white. Um, I spent most of my life like figuring out whether I was a jock or a nerd in baseball locker rooms where you're surrounded by like deep South Republicans. But then I was from the Northeast and came from this like multicultural household and like having to be able to get along with learn from experience, different types of people with different types of intelligence, with different perspectives on the world and not like try to jam your values down other people's throats. That was like formative part of my experience and who I was becoming and who I was. And so, um, and that's unique. Like it, when you meet most people now, like that they're trying to jam their values down your throat and it's super annoying. I never want to be that way. Every politician, that's what they're trying to do. Um, and so like my, grounding was in the complete opposite. Like I wanted to learn from different types of people. I believe in true intelligence. There's a quote, like true intelligence is the ability to hold two conflicting ideas in your head at once. Like that's what I want. That's what I want to be. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that is my superpower. And going back to the fund then, um, what are you, what are you focused on right now? Cause again, this goes back to your superpower, right? You're really good with relationships. And I think you, you aren't focused on any specific vertical, right? Yeah, it's generalist fund, um, technically stage agnostic, although it's going to be mostly pre-seed and seed. Um, you know, with the fund, I'm really focused on companies I can actually help via my platform. So like companies where there's a storytelling element that they either need to figure out or they need to amplify. Um, and so like, you know, that that will lend itself to certain areas at certain points in time. Like I think there's really interesting things in environmental technology and biotechnology where you need to like create a story before the product really launches into the market. I mean, similar to how you think about like Uber, uh, you had to convince the world that they could go get into a stranger's car. And that's a story, right? Like that's storytelling that needs to be done that convinces people of that prior to the business being able to be a success. Um, and I think there's a lot of businesses out there that are like that, that haven't quite figured out that they do need to do that. And I have developed over a long period of time, a lot of systems of how to do that well and, and how to, um, you know, uh, how to do that effectively, both as an individual and as a business. And your deal flow. So I, I'm just trying like some of the deals I, I've gotten into, I'm just like, oh, it looks like a really interesting company. I'm going to either reach out to them or if they, they seem like they're a little cold, I might try to get them on the podcast and then ask, ask them afterwards if I can invest. Like, how are you sourcing your deals? Mostly through super smart investors. Um, so like my my model with the fund was it's just going to be me. Um, I don't have, I don't have a big team going out and doing deal sourcing for me. And so I'm going to tie in some of the smartest people in the world into my fund. So I basically went out when I raised the fund and went to like the smartest venture investors in the world that I could possibly reach a lot of whom you'd know, uh, you know, like big well-known GPs at these enormous funds and had them personally or through their fund invest in my fund, small checks. And what that did was it tied in like sources of deal flow where they know exactly what I can be useful for. And when there's situations where those things come up, I'm getting them like they're reaching out to me. And usually what that means for me is it's like it's pre-vetted deal flow. That doesn't mean that I do every deal. That doesn't mean that like every deal they do is good, but it's pre-vetted, right? Like Founders Fund is not doing, you know, just any deal, right? Like they do a few deals a year right now. So if I'm seeing something through them, um, that is 
there's some level of like signaling that comes with that that is different than just like someone DMing me out of the blue. Um, so I'm relying on some of that as like the the kind of like upfront vetting of a deal before I spend time and look at it. Got it. I mean, you played baseball, so like, what's the hills like strike zone for uh, for swinging on a deal? Um, it, I mean, it needs to be like someone that uh, is. I would say like has exhibited resilience in their career as from a founder perspective. Um, I have a tough time with the like truly green founder that hasn't had the like big failure yet. I think that that's like a tough mind. You don't see a whole ton of founder success stories where that was the archetype of like yeah. the founder that had never failed every now and then, you know, like I guess Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook is probably like, like a big, big example, but mm -hmm. most of them had had the like, public failure then they launched the thing they'd kind of like had to get up back off a of mat so i think about that a lot with founders um and then i really just want to find people who are focused on the like 30 plus year vision of what they're building um you know in 2020 2021 you found a lot of people that were focused on the like oh we can go raise the markup and we'll do this and tiger's going to invest in the next round or whatever like that was what it was and they were getting excited about that and unfortunately i did invest in a few things like that because i fell into the fomo and the trap um but that never works out. Like if you're focused on the next year, two years, and you're not thinking about what the 10 year vision is of what you're building, um, it's a long road to a venture scale outcome, no matter what, right? Like even the best outcomes, it's a long, long, long road. Um, and you're gonna have big failures along the way. So like getting people that are in for that and that want, that really care about the mission of what they're driving is uh, probably the most important thing. I mean, there's a Charlie Munger quote, right? Show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Yeah. And you just, I mean, with, with venture, it's just like, oh, I, I, I'm sure you had all these conversations. Like, yeah, you know, we're just looking to raise the next round. It's like, how about you look like, how about you look to make money? Yeah. <laughs> I, and that was, that was, that was rare in 2021, right? Like mm -hmm. no one had a plan to make money. Mm -hmm. And now everyone has to, you can't even go raise a round if you mm -hmm. don't have a plan to get to profitability. Yeah. Um, and that changed on a dime. I mean, that changed in like six months, all of a sudden, every deck had to have unit yeah. economics, had to have like contribution margin, had to have path to profit profitability. And if you didn't have one, I mean, Paul Graham has been writing about this for the last 20 years, right? Like Paul Graham has this piece, um, I think it's like called default alive, default dead or something about like a business that is default alive. Like it has a clear path as it grows to actually making money so that it doesn't have to rely on funding markets. Um, and the businesses that have that path are going to succeed and going to do well. And the ones that don't are not um, unless they have some you know, crazy thing that's a piece, you know, like an Elon Musk backed company where he can go raise infinite amounts of money in perpetuity because people just want to be a part of it, which no one really has, right? Like that's N of one. Yeah. Um, by the way, what do you mean by N of one when you say that? Uh, N of one, like, you know, sample size of one. He's the got only it. person in the world it, that can it, do it. that. Got it. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to rattle off. We're going to, the way we're going to wrap this, I'm going to rattle off a couple of philosophies over here. Um, first, um, I think one of the, I'm paraphrasing here, but, um, you know, the imposter syndrome piece is a good thing. Mm -hmm. What's your thought? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think imposter syndrome, at least for me, is a signal that you're pushing yourself to grow. Like it's a signal when you feel imposter syndrome, you're inherently like pushing yourself beyond the boundaries of what you believe your current capability stack is. Um, and I view that as a good thing. That's like, okay, now I'm pushing myself beyond that boundary where I feel uncomfortable and I need to figure out the like, what the thing that I need to get better at, the thing I need to learn so that I don't feel like an imposter doing this anymore. Um, so I've always reframed that as a positive and it's been a helpful reframe for me. Love it. Now, there are two types of luck. What are they? Four types of luck. Four types of yeah. luck. Now, the last time I heard you on a pod, it was two. Okay, yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so there's, um, 
this guy, Dr. James Austin is his name. He was a neurologist. Uh, and basically he hypothesized there are four types of luck. So the first type is blind luck. That's like, uh, you know, random chance events of the universe, acts lottery. of God, winning the lottery, etc. Yeah. Uh, second type of luck is luck from motion. That's like you're creating, you know, that's like what happened to me at the gym at 445. Like you're mm -hmm. hustling, you're grinding, creating luck that way. Third type is luck from awareness. That's like... Uh, you develop a level of expertise around something so that you're good at spotting luck. You're good at seeing it as it kind of comes around a corner. You can identify the lucky opportunities. And then the fourth type of luck is luck from uniqueness, which is like the idea that your weird hobbies, eccentricities, etc., actually attract luck to you. Like people come to you with the lucky thing. Sounds like you can develop the two through four. Yeah, the idea is that like, the beginning of your life is governed by the first one, like where you're born, who you're born to, etc. Entirely blind luck. You can't control it. And then as you progress in your life, the other three come into play. So like number two, you know, luck from motion is sort of like the early hustle years of your career, like working really hard, Neil, like all of that stuff. Type three is like as you develop expertise and then type four is like you're truly unique and you like own an individual area or craft. Here, I'll, I'll give you a clip right here. Yeah. Uh, how do you get luckier? Uh, I mean, there's so many ways to get luckier. You have to, uh, you have to expand your luck surface area. Um, that is the key to all of this stuff is like, choose the path that has the wider and larger luck surface area. And, you know, that's by putting yourself out there into the world. Like you can't get lucky sitting at home watching TV. Doing this podcast, doing yeah. your newsletter, all meeting the people, talking yeah. to people, experiencing things, sending more cold emails and cold DMs thoughtfully, not just like blanket copy and paste. Um, all of those things are great for expanding your luck surface area. You've said that friction creates growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, I think that we are generally in a world where like friction has been taken out of everything like technology has removed friction from our daily life um and at some point along the way i think you realize that friction also creates meaning and friction creates the experiences that you remember um and so you need to figure out ways to actually embrace inserting friction back into your life you you have a life dinner with your wife yeah and that's a that? funny topic that it gets like it, people get really riled up about that on the internet um this was like an idea that came originally from i think an investor named brad feld mm. had written about it in like an essay maybe m many years ago that i picked it up from um basically the idea is that like after you have kids uh in particular life gets pretty chaotic and it gets increasingly difficult to find the time to sit down with your partner and actually spend time thinking about talking about your like goals, dreams, aspirations, what's working, what's not working, all of those things. Because you have like chaos in your daily life, like your kids screaming, crying, all this different stuff is happening. You're running around to different events, whatever it is. Um, and so taking the time, the life dinner is the idea that like once a month, you have like a date on the calendar when you sit down and you talk about these things. Like there's, there's an, you know, you're having a dinner, but there's like an agenda. Like you're talking about your goals. You're talking about what has worked the last month. What are your challenges? Like what are the opportunities? How is your relationship growing? How are your businesses, you know, professional aspirations growing? It's like taking the time and making sure there's like an actual forcing function to have those conversations once a month. People take this in a negative direction on the internet when you talk about it because they say like, oh, if you need like a schedule on your dinner to, to do that, like your relationship's bound to fail. And I just think, I think that's ridiculous because 
that's not that's actually not the point like the point is to make sure that you do it once a month if you get to do it every day i'm happy for you great but like with one newborn in the house that's a little bit crazy we do not get to do that every day we go on a lot of walks and we talk about you know things here and there but like really having a substantive hour-long conversation every day yeah right like good luck um and so having that forcing function on the calendar, I, and honestly, like before you have kids, I think it's a great thing that people should do with their partners, with, you know, girlfriends, boyfriends, partners, whatever. Um, I We have found a lot of value in it. I, just, I mean, to your point, I, I, I find it kind of crazy because like people are like, oh, like business and people are different. But it's like, no, business art is about people and a relationship is about people too. So it's what's wrong with like systematizing it a little bit, right? Yeah, it's also just growth. Um you can't just like assume that a relationship is going to just be strong over long periods of time if you don't work at it. And anyone that thinks that it's going to just happen by itself, relationships are work. And unless you're willing to do the work along the way, you're going to have massive issues that have just like boiled up under the surface without you thinking about it, or without you doing it or, or, you know, like working towards it. And so, um, you know, there's like the idea of like, complementarity is much more important than compatibility in mm. relationships. And we always focus on compatibility. Like, am yeah. I compatible with this person? The reality yeah. is you need to be complementary with the person over long periods of time. And so making sure you're talking about those weaknesses and strengths and where you feel like you're growing or developing and where you feel like you need the other person to fill your gap. I mean, like relationships are not 50-50 and they can't be at all times. If my wife if I get home after this trip and my wife is going to be drained from having taken care of our son for a few days, she can't possibly be expected to give 50% to like meet me halfway when I get home. I need to be ready to do 90 and she's going to go 10. And then later it might be that I'm exhausted and I can only give 10 and she needs to go 90. But unless we have the conversations and the communication skills to know that and to be able to communicate that to one another, we're going to be completely lost. Is it like, uh, it's like Batman and Robin and sometimes you guys have to switch roles. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like someone has to be the superhero and someone has to be the sidekick at different yeah. points in time. Love it. There's another post. Yeah. But uh, yeah. so, so, okay. I, I do want to talk about, I have a bunch of lines that, to, to rattle off in a little bit, but um, let's talk about your health stack because you're still pretty, you're still pretty fit. Look, you, yeah. you take, you take it pretty seriously. So what's in the health and fitness stack? Oh, let's see. So I'm kind of crazy about this stuff. So I, um. Uh, on a daily basis, I do my cold plunge in the morning. First thing, um, 39 degrees for three to five minutes every single morning, right when I get out of bed. So that's like, yeah, it's on my deck. So we have a, we have a deck off of our master bedroom that has my sauna and my cold plunge next to it. Um, so I get in there first thing in the morning. Um, that's like at four 30 ish in the morning. Um, it's miserable. It sucks. I, I hate it, but then it's amazing as soon as I get out. Um, in the evening, I do my sauna every evening. That's when I do like a bunch of reading and stuff in there, which is great because you can't bring your phone in because it's overheats. So like just sort of you and your thoughts. Um, and then during the days, basically now I do um, like running training. I just went and ran a marathon. I had never run before in my life until like March of this year, picked it up. Uh, and decided I was going to run a sub three hour marathon, like trained like nuts, ran 1200 miles over six months, ran the marathon September 10th, did it, ran it in 257.31, which was wow. great. Um, and I do that plus uh, like four to five day a week lifting thing, um, have built out a home gym, have the whole like the whole thing. You're doing the whole like zone two, three hours a week as well? <laughs> the Huberman stuff? Yeah. Uh, I do. Yeah, I probably do several hours of zone two a week just yeah. in my running because um, yeah. of like a bunch of easy runs. But I um, look, I think that like there's levels to fitness stuff. Uh, and most people, what they need to do is just move their body for 30 minutes a day. 
and like going and listening to Huberman Lab and having, uh, you know, thinking that there's like a million complicated things that you need to do if like you haven't just started moving around for 30 minutes a day is probably not super beneficial. I think it's great to be educated, but like just go move around a little bit and that'll be a good start. Um, and so like I try to share that. I mean, when I talk about my own regimens and my own routines, I try to share like what is the easiest version of this that you can do that anyone can do. The cold, the cold plunge you have, it's literally called the cold plunge, right? Yeah, it's called, I think it's now called the plunge, but yeah, okay. yeah, it's, it's the cold plunge. How about the sauna? Uh, it's from that same company actually. Oh really? Yeah. They, they're releasing a sauna. I think it's in beta now. They sent me one. Uh, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. That's one of the perks of being uh, a creator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, like, yeah, I've probably sold a bunch of cold plunges. I, mean, I do like a video in it every single yeah. morning on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and they're awesome. And the, the product is great. Like it's just lasted. They have a great warranty. They take care of you you probably get a lot of engagement both positive and negative too yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there's always like anytime you're doing anything that uh you know involves being shirtless like there's always gonna yeah. be haters on it yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. I love it, it drives the rage click for sure all right cool what is your definition of wealth what's the real definition of wealth of wealth uh-huh um Look, I'm writing a book on this, so uh, people will have to buy my book to get my full definition. But um, no, I mean, look, I think that wealth goes well beyond money and that living a truly wealthy life um, is about a whole lot more than than making money along the way. And so, um, yeah, that's uh, I, I will I will reserve uh, reserve the full definition for the the, the book release. Go buy the book. Yeah. Um, and then meditation comes in different forms. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, like, look, I always thought that in order to like be a meditator or find mindfulness, I had to like sit squatted down and, you know, put my hands on and do the whole like, you know, hour long meditation. And the reality is like, I've never been able to do that, but I do feel like I meditate daily while I go on walks. And so finding like your, uh, garden, uh, I say that because, um, so John D Rockefeller was famous for, like milling about his garden, doing nothing on a daily basis. One of the most powerful, richest man in the world at the time, uh, he would just like aimlessly walk around his garden on a daily basis, not taking notes, not reading things. There was no podcasts back in the day. Yep. Uh, he was just thinking and just like meditating on whatever it was during the day. We all need to like find our version of the garden where we can just kind of escape on a daily basis. And that can be for like two minutes. It doesn't have to be, you know, hours long, 15 minutes, whatever. But just like finding those little escapes in your daily life are extremely powerful. Yeah, I, I tend to think that everything is on a sliding scale. It's like, you know, some people over-index on being too productive. Some people over-index on, you know, maximum meditation, right? But usually it's like a balance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, and also if you put pressure on yourself that it needs to be the maximum level, you'll never get the beneficial level. Yep. I think you said you have, I mean, you're mainly talking about balance now. That's like the pillar, right, of, of the, your content creation. But then you also have three pillars that it sits on. Is that still a thing or no? Uh what do you mean? So it could be balanced, but you could like, for me, for example, I might talk about like, you know, buying agencies or running an agency. Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't really think much about like my content pillars anymore. Um, I would say I used to do a lot more of that when I was trying to like make sure that I hit on kind of the different pillars on a, on a weekly basis. Now things have just changed for me. Like as things have hit scale where I I'm not as like regimented about like what I write about and when I write about it. Um, it's much more driven by like, just like what I'm getting excited about on a daily basis. Got it. I love that. I do think that having that, if you're starting out is helpful, like knowing, 
okay, you know, I'm a, a wealth manager. Like I'm going to write about markets. I'm going to write about, um, you know, like uh, investing and I'm going to write about, you know, my family and personal experiences and like knowing you're kind of three so that you can look at like, I don't want to be over indexed into one of one of the three. I'm going to try to like balance across the three of them. It's just like a helpful exercise to go through. I think this is super helpful because I think people should go back and re-list and if they want to, if they're starting from scratch, they want to create like, this is the playbook to do it. Um, but Sahil, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online and to learn about your new book? Yeah. Uh, everything's at sahobloom.com. Uh, the fortunate thing about having a weird name is that it's easy to find me. So I think I'm like at sahobloom on every, uh, on every single uh, platform as well. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.